Isaiah 35, verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is the word of God. Good morning. Um, The reading this morning is taken from Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, at times of refreshing may may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes from God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. 
You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. This is God's word. Our Father God, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, died, but you raised him from the dead, and he reigns on high. And the same Jesus who produced this miracle that took place in his name is the same Jesus upon the throne of the world. So as we turn and read your word this morning, would your spirit encourage us to trust him? We ask it in his name. Amen. Now, I think if you're a TV, if you produce the news, that's quite a difficult job. I uh, met a few years ago Peter Horrocks, who at the time was uh, the head of BBC News. That sounds quite important to me. Um, uh, But he was a nice bloke. And um, talking about how how do you decide what goes up first? Uh, How do you make those decisions, national, VV international? um, How do you weigh that up? Um, What's gone on before? Who's interested? It's quite difficult decisions to make. Uh, I guess at the moment, uh, political party conference season, they kind of dominate, unless there's major catastrophe in the world. We'll see what happens in Catalonia today. But uh, a lot of politics um, at the moment. And for some of us, that's wildly exciting. Uh, And we love party conference season. Uh, And then there's the normal people. I slightly put myself in the former category, actually. I do quite like, uh, and I do sort of read the party leaders' speeches and in full. But um, uh, some of us, uh, that's a little dull. But what are you, you going to put on the news? It's quite hard to work out what you have first up. And no doubt they deliberate for a long time. And, oh, and the politics, well, of course, it has a, whether you like it or not, it's going to have a significant impact on the next few years. I mean, golly, you look at the news this week, renationalization of industries, wow. A run on the pound, wow. Sorting through Brexit, goodness. Miracles required, apparently, for that to work. And it is important, and it will affect us. And then you read other things, and your mind turns to other things, and you think, well, maybe not so important. I read this week... The testimony of Julie Lamplew. I don't know if you've met her, come across her. Five years ago, she was diagnosed with breast cancer in her 30s. Three kids, the youngest of whom was 16 months. And she writes very movingly of receiving the news and just the whole family, dad to just embracing one another and sobbing. But the oncologist, very positive, and said, no, look, you're young. We can get this. And so, of course, she went through the stages of of surgery, chemotherapy, had radiotherapy as well. She went through all those stages. And um, it went pretty well. 
And so two years after the original diagnosis, uh, she was given the all clear, had reconstructive surgery, and um, thought, well, off we go again. What a miserable two years. But three weeks after reconstructive surgery, pain in her shoulder led her back. And then they scanned again and, oh, actually cancer has spread through your bones and to your lymph nodes. And I'm afraid this is not operable. And this is not curable. And so we can prolong your life. But that's all we can do. And so she writes very movingly of, of course, she's done everything. Every tablet, every possible uh, radiotherapy to hold things back. But now it's almost at the end. She knows that. And she writes of her sadness that I will never see my children grow up. And so you find yourself thinking, well, I quite like the news. But really of what use to a 35-year-old woman suffering with terminal cancer into the last few months of her life is the promise of a new political era. She doesn't care. She needs a better hope. And wonderfully, it's the hope that's held out in Acts chapter 3. If you are joining us today, uh, the book of Acts, then, is a book about certainty, we've said. It's, uh, Luke has written it so that uh, the audience, originally, and us now, will be certain, certain of the truth of the gospel, these events took place, uh, certain of the content of the gospel, what it is you need to believe, and its innocence, that it is good for the world, it doesn't do uh, damage. And this section we're in goes all the way from the beginning to chapter 6, verse 7. Uh, we're in Jerusalem, before we go to Samaria and the ends of the earth. And uh, we spent a few weeks on uh, Acts chapter 2, significant day, where the day of Pentecost, where the risen Jesus Christ pours out his spirit for the first time upon the church. Wonderful. And then you get in chapter 3 this miracle. You get the account of it in the first 10 verses, and then Peter's explanation. And you may not realize, but it's unusual, because it's the only miracle in the book of Acts recorded at this sort of length. Oh, plenty of others take place, but it's sort of, oh, and loads of miracles happened and loads of people were healed. This one gets a lot of airtime because I think we're meant to read it as a, a sort of paradigm. This is the sort of thing that was going on. Let me give you this one in detail, and then you just know that others are going on over there. So you get the miracle, Peter's explanation, and then the two responses, which we'll get to at the end. But let me just point them, you to them. Chapter 4, verse 2, or chapter 4, verse 1, you get what you might call the elite, the establishment. Priests, religious, political. Verse 2, they were greatly disturbed. Why? Because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That's what they didn't like. They didn't like that. But by contrast, verse 4, many, many believed So the issue that causes the distress amongst the establishment is this. There is a life to come. There is resurrection from the dead. And that's what this miracle points towards. Let's look at it briefly, and then uh, we'll spend most of our time on Peter's speech. So here's this man who's healed in the name of Jesus, uh, verses uh, 1 to 10. So verse, chapter 3, verse 1, uh, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. Remember we said last time, they go and pray together. That's what they do. And um, at about 3 in the afternoon, now a man who was lame from birth, we're told uh, in chapter 4, verse 22, he's over 40 years old. 
So a man who's been lame from birth for 40 years was being carried to a temple gate called Beautiful, where he'd been put every day. Sorry, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. So if you lived in Jerusalem, you'd know this bloke. He's not named. You can call him what you want, Silas, I don't know. So you walk past Silas every day, every day. Everyone knew this old boy. He's only 40, but no doubt looked pretty old. That's all he does all day long. Well, uh, Peter and John, um, verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. That's what he does. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. Oh, brilliant. Why, what are you going to do for me? So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. A little touch. He doesn't ask them to be healed. He asks them for money, or that's the expectation. He's got his big bowl out and his big sign out saying, um, lame since birth, reliant upon your generosity, God loves a generous giver, uh, give me your cash. That sort of sign, probably a bit briefer than that, let's be honest. But um, he doesn't ask to be healed. Peter and John just think, this is what we're going to do. In one sense, I think it's an instinctive act of compassion. Let me just, a slight tangent, but let me just observe this. I was surprised reading the biography of Steve Jobs, obviously Mr. Mr. Apple, Mr. iPhone, that uh, growing up, his uh, sort, of, sort of Christian parents took him to church, a Lutheran church, uh, every Sunday, until, he says, 1968. Because in 1968, it was the Biafran War, uh, as that region of Nigeria tried to break away. And on the cover of uh, uh, Life magazine, I think it was, was a pair of starving children, emaciated. And uh, Steve Jobs took this magazine to, uh, to church and said to the pastor, why doesn't God do something about this? And the pastor said, I, I don't know, Steve. At that point, Job said, that's it. I don't want anything to do with a God who knows that this is taking place and does nothing. The extraordinary thing was he then went spent spent 10 years studying the tenets of Zen Buddhism, a philosophy which denies there's evil, denies there is suffering. You just need to overcome it. Now that seems extraordinary. You can't help but read that with enormous sadness and think if only someone had been able to explain to him, in Jesus Christ you have the God who cares so much about suffering and death that he came into this world to experience them. For the sake of people like you and me, so we could go to a world where they do not exist. What does Zen Buddhism say to a man like this at the gate? It says it's your fault. If you, if you can't overcome this, it's your lack of imagination. Or in some Buddhist groups, it would be, you're suffering karma. It's your fault. Of course, by contrast, you have belief in a benevolent, loving, creator God. You can't help but have compassion for his world gone wrong. And Peter and John have that. So they look at this man and say, no, we can do something for you. What's the emphasis? The emphasis, of course, is upon the name, verse 6. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth walk. 
and they, it's exactly what happens. The emphasis is upon the fact that afterwards he just walks. So um, verse 7, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who'd been begging. Wow. Just in case you're in doubt, three times. He walked. He really had changed here. So the people are all stunned and amazed how extraordinary. Peter stands up and says, well, let me explain what's happened here. And wonderfully, he says it in three different ways. Well, he makes three points, obviously, naturally. Uh, let's look at them. This is how it breaks down. You killed him. The prophets foretold him, but you'll find blessings in him. Let me push through this fairly quickly so we get to the reactions in chapter 4. You killed him. The prophets foretold him. You'll find blessings in him. First, then, he goes on the offensive, I guess, Peter. Verses 11 to 16, you killed him. So verse 11, when the man held on to Peter, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, oi, listen up. I've got two questions for you. One, why does this surprise you? Uh, Because he's been lame for 40 years. Second question, why do you stare at us? As if by our own power or godliness we've made this man walk. Nothing to do with us. And then he makes these contrasts between the names of Jesus and who Jesus is and their actions. And they're pretty pointed. So uh, verse 13. You handed him over. You handed God's servant over to be killed. Verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one and preferred a murderer in his stead, Barabbas. Verse 15, you killed the author of life. So you handed him over, you disowned, you killed, and who was it? God's servant, the holy and righteous one, the author of life. It's quite a contrast between who you've attacked here and and your behavior, your attitude towards him. But God raised him, and uh, we're witnesses of that fact. And it's this Jesus, who you killed, has healed this man today. You see the emphasis, verse 16. It's again, it's on the name. Verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know is made strong. It is Jesus' name. And the faith that comes through him, that has completely healed him, as you can all see. His name, symbolizing the fact he's alive, and his name symbolizes his dynamic, personal rule. His continuing presence, his ability to transform his name. This miracle is pointing to the fact that Jesus... Is risen and Jesus has healed the man in front of them. Jesus did this. God's servant, the holy and righteous one, the author of life, you killed him. Oh dear. Now, for you and me, uh, here we are in 2017, we did not hand Jesus over to be killed. Uh, we personally were not there. Um, none of us, I don't think, looking around the room. I'm fairly confident of that. And yet, of course, the attitude, well, the attitude remains, 
I guess, given a choice between Jesus saying, um, anyone would come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You've got to deny everything to follow me. Oh. Or a politician, even a slightly unscrupulous political option like Barabbas, who had murdered, but hey, was leading a bit of a political rebellion. Or you can have a political option, which doesn't demand much of you, but offers you huge amounts, a bright future, and you don't have to do much. Well, given that choice, deny yourself and follow me, or I'll offer you all sorts of things, but it won't cost you very much. Well, to turn away from the one who is God, the one who's the author of life, well, we might do that in a self-interested fashion. We don't naturally want the author of life when he asks us to follow him. You killed him. Uh, You killed him, says Peter. Uh, Slight change of tone, though, in verses 17 to 26. The prophets foretold him. Verse 17, now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. So look, I'm not going to beat you up too much, he says. But the emphasis in this section is all about this is fulfilling the whole of the Old Testament. So verse 18, this is how God fulfilled what what he had foretold through all the prophets. Verse 21, heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Verse 24, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. You're heirs of the prophets and the covenant promises God made with your father. So there's the emphasis you see. Everything here, there's no surprise here. If you read your Old Testament, the prophets had said this will take place. And the great and the good of the Old Testament are there. So here we've got Abraham and Moses and Samuel. Isaiah is referenced, I think, in the servant language. And um, the reason we had Isaiah 35 read earlier on, do you see the language of when Messiah comes, the lame will leap for joy? Well, what do we see this lame man doing? Verse 8, he walks, he walks, he walks, and he jumps. And we're meant to read this, and they were meant to see this and think, Ah, here's the promise of Isaiah, the lame leaping. That, 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 hold on, that's what happens when the Messiah comes. We're meant to think, ah, oh, the promised kingdom of God is here. Fulfillment of these promises. Now, slight tangent. Uh, I guess we've got to ask you a question. Should we expect these sort of miracles all the time? Should we have a few more of them? Uh, Here in London, I mean, they seem to get advertised on the back of buses. Should we expect many more of them? No, not quite like this. Now, I don't want to be misheard. God can do what he wants, and I have no doubt that he heals miraculously in supernatural ways that we can't really understand in the world today. And yet at the same time, I don't see or hear many stories of people lame for 40 years being miraculously healed in an instant. quite to that extent and I don't think we should expect this level and this volume the reason being in Acts chapter 2 if you hear we saw that what is being fulfilled is the promises of Joel 2 that when God pours out his spirit there will be signs and wonders and that's what you see in the book of Acts signs and wonders I scribble down at the bottom of the sheet all the different references to signs and wonders 
in Acts, in the book of Acts. And so for the first 15 chapters, Acts 2, the pouring out of the Spirit as the good news of Jesus spreads throughout the world, is being fulfilled. Then in Acts chapter 15 to the end of the book, you get another Old Testament quote, Amos 9, about Paul being a light to the Gentiles, and that is the one that is quoted the rest of the book of Acts. So Luke deliberately emphasizes this signs and wonders was for a period of history. Even in Acts chapter 15, it ends, and you don't see it so much. It's for a certain period of history to authenticate what's going on. So in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul can say, yeah, yeah, signs and wonders, they're the sign of an apostle to show that we are unusual, unique witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I don't think we should see this now. You don't get the command of Jesus to the apostles or indeed Christian followers saying, now look, I do. why don't you just go out throughout the whole world and heal everyone who's lame and blind and deaf. In fact, heal all sicknesses. That is not a command that comes in the Bible. Because what you have here in this miracle is an advert for the next world. It's an indication of what will happen at what Peter calls the restoration of all things, verse 21. In this healing, you get a picture of the future. And the miracles and the signs and wonders, they're like a drop of color in a black and white film. And you're watching the film and you think, oh, wow, that, that's different. It's vivid, you notice it. Or you... Um, at Christmas time, you've got a bit of time off on holiday and you book your summer holiday because it's a bit grim and oh, brilliant, that's done. Uh, and then in February, it's raining and it's all a bit gloomy and you just go on the internet and go, where are we going in the summer? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It'll be different then. And that's what these signs and wonders are here. They're authenticating who the prophets are and they're pointing to the next world. Even the opposition get that in chapter 4, verse 2. Oh, he's talking about resurrection, isn't he? The resurrection life. Even Peter and John's opponents get that. This miracle points to a wonderful world without sickness that will come through the risen Jesus Christ. Wonderful. You killed him. The prophets foretold him. But you'll find blessings in him. And really the heart of the sermon in one sense comes in verses 19 to 21. Here's what you need to do you'll find blessings in him. Verse 19, repent. Repent then and turn to God. Here are the blessings or the benefits of becoming a Christian. If you repent, turn around from rejecting the author of life, turn back to him and follow him. And here are the blessings that follow. There are three. Sins wiped out, times of refreshing, the restoration of everything. Comment on them briefly. Sins wiped out, verse 19. Return, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. It's a lovely phrase. I didn't know this. I read it in the first century uh, scrolls when they wrote upon scrolls uh, in their ink. Uh, it didn't have acid like modern inks have. Who knows these things anyway? Um, uh, so when we write now, it's sort of 
uh, our ink bites into the page a little bit, leaves a dent. So even if you have a magic ink eraser, uh, you can still see the sort of imprint there. But in the first century, the scroll, the, the ink was just a bit different, a bit more primitive, I guess. Uh, and so it would be on the surface of the page, but you could get a sponge and wipe it off. And nothing was left. Nothing. That's the point. Sins wiped away. And there is no legacy at all. I guess the modern equivalent would be to have some clever internet um, computer program that uh, everything on the internet that you'd done that was a little bit embarrassing or perhaps you regret and every photograph uh, and you release this program and it just takes out down everything every embarrassing bit of history it even invades other people's computers so they've taken naughty screenshots of you saying embarrassing things it's all gone everything gone sins wiped away so look let me just say in passing please if you're a christian you have trusted in jesus christ never just never never look up and think i i wonder if god holds that against me I, I wonder if he just remembers what I did last year, and if I do it again, he'll come down on me. Don't ever look up and think he's condemning me. It's all gone. It's all gone. It's wiped away with no remnant, no legacy, no hint that it was there. It's gone. Sin's wiped away. Second blessing, times of refreshing, verse 19, which I think is meant to be a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing people into relationship with God now. I think that's what it's meant to be. Certainly at the end of Acts chapter 2, the two blessings were forgiveness of sins and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So I think it's the same here. The new blessing here that Peter hasn't spoken about is verse 20. Time will come when God sends the Messiah who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven and earth, excuse me, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. That's the sort of new promise, new blessing that Peter didn't speak about in Acts 2. A time is coming when Jesus returns to restore everything. Again, the, 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 the opponents get this, chapter 4, verse 2. They know this is being spoken of, his resurrection of the dead the new creation promised by the prophets. They know what he's talking about. He's talking about promises such as Isaiah 35, verse 8. The Lord will destroy the shroud of death that, the shroud of death that lies over people. He will swallow up death forever. Daniel 12, verse 2. Many will rise to everlasting life. The restoration of all things to as they should be. These three blessings then, sins wiped out, made possible through the death of Jesus. Times of refreshing through the Spirit, made possible through the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and he's poured out his Spirit. The restoration of all things, oh, that comes upon the return of Jesus. All these blessings through his name. You killed him, the prophets foretold him, you'll find blessings in him. Two responses, then we're done. Into chapter four, you get two responses. First, then, is what I might call the establishment. 
But chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. I say the establishment, the priests, that's the sort of religious elite in Jerusalem. If you're a priest in Jerusalem, you are, you know, that's a pretty great career right there. Uh, the captain of the temple, uh, it's just captain, literally, so it could mean military, or it could just mean senior priest, could just mean high priest, I'm not so sure about that. The Sadducees, they're the wealthy families. They're the, you know, the, those whose children go into all the top jobs. Though they're the aristocracy, uh, you know, they're the establishment figures. So you've got a sort of political, perhaps military, religious establishment. And they don't like what they're hearing. Because, well, they're the winners in life. In the first century, these are the winners in the world. These are the top 1%. These are the people who own all the empty flats in London. These are the people who buy the properties for £10 million. Who's buying these properties for £10 million? These are the elite. And they don't like this. Because they don't want change. Because life is good for them. And they don't want disruption. And they don't want to be told, repent. Repent. And trust in the Messiah. They don't want to be told, as Peter has told them in verse 23. You've got to listen to him. Chapter 3, verse 23. Anyone who doesn't listen to Jesus will be completely cut off. They don't want that. They don't want change. They'll live with believers being charitable. They'll live with the believers' compassion. They just don't want the church's saviour. So they seize Peter and John and put them in jail. Now, I don't think that's a million miles away from our world today. People don't mind a church that says... Blessings for this world. Have compassion in this world. People won't mind that. Might quite like it, some. But say to people, you need to listen to Jesus or you'll be cut off forever. You need to trust in Jesus. He's the only way you can have an eternity when all things are restored with him. Oh, he says now you've got to follow him. Now you've got to deny yourself and give up everything and follow him. But then, oh, then at the restoration of all things, it would be truly wonderful. And people don't want it. It's a common enough attitude. And you can live that way for a while, of course. But a refusal to acknowledge this Jesus and let's keep things the way they are in this world, it says nothing to Julie Lamplew who expects to die this year of cancer. Let me quote just a little bit of her testimony. I prepare for the worst these days. I know that I will die and leave behind my husband and three children. I know also that this world is due to expire at some point. I think about heaven... And about the reality that there will be no more crying or pain. This suffering that I'm enduring is only for now. Compared to eternity, it is short-lived. In eternity, God will completely restore me. Make me strong, firm, steadfast. 
One day, my body will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Now that is hope. That's real hope. And this miracle here in Acts chapter 3, it is pointing to a world where there is no more sickness and no more pain. And no more physical deformity. And no more mental disability. No more learning difficulty. Everything is restored. Everything. And how does it happen? It's verse 16. It's by faith in the name of Jesus. This man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that's completely healed him. Oh, they could see it then in one man. We will see it in the whole world. If we have faith in his name. Let's pray together. Our Father, life is busy and much of it is very, very good and hugely enjoyable. But sometimes uh, the only things that matter are what happens next. Father, thank you for this miracle recorded for us. A lame man dancing in fulfillment of the scriptures. In fulfillment that Jesus would come and experience suffering and death in order to take us to a world where those things do not exist. Thank you for the sure and certain hope that gives to a Julie Lamplew, to many who have seen loved ones die, to those who are deeply frustrated by the pain and the sickness and the suffering and the brokenness of this world now. Thank you that we can look forward to the restoration of all things. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.